0: Enter Sadman Podcast: Every rock and metal album you should own, reviewed, rated, and ranked.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the Enter Sadman Podcast, episode number forty-two. Would you believe this week? Joined as always by Richard and Steve in the uh, chairs. Well, I was going to say opposite me, but virtually opposite me. Uh, evening, gents. How are you?
2: Very good, thank you. Very
0: good. Yeah, not bad at all. Looking forward to this this episode. This seems. A little bit of sanity has been restored to enter sad men this week, in it? With uh, three albums we've heard of, so it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's good. Although uh, it has been a bit of a dilemma because this episode of the show is the Crofty special. This is where we talk about the albums that David Croft, Formula One, uh, Sky Sports Formula One uh, commentator, lead commentator, he was on the show a few weeks ago. If you heard it, um, these are the albums that he stepped for us to review, rate and rank. Except we got caught not in a mosh, but in a dilemma. and um, because as anyone who's listening to that show will know, Crofty is a massive Bruce Springsteen fan. And one of the albums that he gave us was Born to Run by the Boss for nineteen seventy four, a third album from Bruce Springsteen. So we sat down dutifully as we were contractually obliged to do and we listened to it and we reached the conclusion that reviewing Bruce Springsteen on this particular show in this particular list was a bit like putting a Le Mans prototype on the grid at Silverstone next to an F1 car. Both fantastic pieces of machinery, but one does not belong with the other. So we've taken a bit of a liberty and uh, we have substituted Bruce Springsteen. We will talk about the bottom moment because we have all listened to it. But for the purpose of the review, we've taken uh, Bruce Springsteen out and we've put in one of the albums that was also on Crofty's top 10, which is Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast, which is uh, the album that I'll be talking about in a minute. Um, but let's just quickly talk about Bruce Springsteen and and why, because in the end we had a, a sort of a, fair, a, a fairly sort of um, angsty WhatsApp exchange, didn't we, where we were kind of trying to think of reasons why we ought to do Bruce, but ultimately we decided not to. But um, let's talk about the album very briefly, because it is, I think, it's a masterpiece for what it is. It doesn't belong here, I don't think. But what did you two, Richard, you knew it anyway, didn't you? Steve, not so much.
2: Yeah, it's, it's one of my favourite albums. It, it, it's absolutely fantastic. and um, I don't know why Crofty likes it. I felt a bit bad because he's clearly a huge influence on many of the bands that we have reviewed and will review on this podcast um, and he is for me the best storyteller in rock and uh, the this album and the tunes on it the pictures that he paints with the music and the words are all the kinds of things that we love talking about on this and oh, it was so it you know I, I, I think it was the most enthusiastic of all of us to include this because I, I love it so much but as I started to listen to it I felt you know yeah okay there's there are a few here that could kind of, well, maybe uh, kind of qualify as the kind of music we, we're we reviewing here. But but to be honest, it would be unfair, unfair for this album and unfair for the rest of the stuff that, that we reviewed to try and include it in, in the Hall of Fame. So, yeah, it's a real shame uh, because it's just end to end. It's just an amazing album.
1: Yeah, second that. Steve, not for you, I don't think, was it? No,
0: no, not really. It's um, I'll take you up on, um, take issue with your greatest storyteller in rock. I think Carl Buchner of Earth Crisis might have something to say about that. But the problem is that we love our music so much, and it is, you know, Enter Sad Men, it is. We always call it hard rock and heavy metal. It's a pretty eclectic mix of stuff we're looking at. We really are. Genesis is nursery crime. We, we happily sat through that and, and reviewed it, you know. But then we've always kind of accepted that prog in all its various, you know, distorted shapes and phases, and there's a lot of it, it's very distorted. Um, we're kind of happy, we're, we're comfortable talking about, and yet there's some really mellow stuff, you know, we did the Cults album, as you know, and we did have a a, a long, hard conversation about the merits of that, but you've you got to draw a line somewhere, and it's just unfortunate that it's, um, you know, Crofty had put it up, and he has so much passion for Springsteen, and you could hear it in the interview, and anyone who hasn't go check out the episode, because he, he absolutely adores the man and everything about him, and everything he's done and written. So I feel kind of slightly bad about that, but he'll get, he'll understand. He It's not for us. It's not for Enter Sad Men, and it's not for me particularly. You know, I've played it through a couple of times. I've heard it, you know a few of the tracks before, and I was just, yeah, left pretty
1: indifferent. So for my part, um, I, I'm sort of obviously far more with uh, with Richard I Love, Springsteen and yeah you're absolutely right Steve you know the passion that, that Crofty has for for the boss was there for all to see and hear in the interview that we did with him what he doesn't know about the music of Bruce Springsteen I think he can probably write on a postage stamp but um, anyway we draw a line we move on and you know the, the fact is the three albums that we're about to talk about are still three albums that feature pretty dominantly in Crofty's top ten. So we haven't exactly abandoned um, the principle of the show. We've just swapped out one and put in another. So as I say, I'll be talking about um, Number of the Beast, but there were two others and it is a fairly eclectic mix that we've got this evening. Um, But next chronologically is the album that you're going to talk about.
0: Yeah, and um, his favourite Metallica album, he made that point, didn't he? Ride the Lightning. And I think, I mean, is it the best album they did? I, well, our scores will determine that accordingly, of course. And, and what goes in the Enter Sadman Hall of Fame is, um, is biblical, but fantastic album. Absolutely fantastic album. It was just never going to be a bad week when you've got a week listening to Ride the Lightning. And, you know, you know, the, you know those tracks beat by beat. Doesn't matter. It's still an absolute blast to listen to. thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, you know, hats off to Crofty for having such fine taste in music. I take it all back.
1: <laughs> uh, and his third choice, which was more up your strata, I think, t- t- certainly in t- productions. Let me start that again. I feel like Granville. Um, oh, I'll cry. <laughs> <laughs> it was more up your strata, I think, certainly in production terms,
2: wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. One of the best produced albums in terms of capturing a band ever uh and yeah if crofty hadn't chosen it i would have introduced it at some point uh much to your delight amusement disdain we'll find out later yeah it's um the second album by the black crows the wonderfully titled the southern harmony and musical companion
1: from 1992. okay well let's have a quick listen through some of the highlights pretty sure that most of the people listening to this will be familiar with all of those, if not at least two thirds of them. But um, yeah, it's a quick listen through some of the highlights.
2: whetted your appetites for what we'll be talking about for the next hour and a bit or so. So we got two from the eighties and one from the nineties. And we start in nineteen eighty two with an absolute game changer of an album by Dear Old Iron Maiden, Number of the Beasts. Mark, take us through this one. Opening album sleeve notes.
1: Yeah, interesting that you you refer to it as a game changer. It was. It certainly was, but I'm not sure it was as much of a game changer as their debut, but we will come on to that. We're not here to talk about the self-titled debut album from 1980. We're here to talk about Number of the Least and lots of changes for Maiden with this. They said uh, goodbye at the end of this to uh, Clive Burr, and of course they would said goodbye to Paul Diano, and replaced him with Bruce Dickinson, formerly of Samson. And um, so this is Number of the Beasts. Maiden's third album came after Killers. It was recorded between Jan- well, in January and February of ninety two And they, they didn't fuck around in the, back in those days. They got these albums out because it was out a month later. Uh, all the pre-production and mixing down done on the EMI label. 39 minutes and 11 seconds of absolute genius from Martin Birch, recorded at the Battery Studio in London. And the lineup, well, was Dickinson on uh, lead and backing vocals, Dave Murray on guitars, Adrian Smith guitars and backing vocals, Steve Harris bass and backing vocals, and Clive Burr on drums. And we're going to have a chat about the album in a minute. But be uh, being absolutely no doubt that who owns this band, and that is Steve Harris, because he is the governor as far as I am made in concerned. He called all the shots, and there was some pretty hard discipline that went into the recording of it um, Steve Harris is renowned for being a hard taskmaster when it comes to looking for perfection and he found the ultimate partner I suppose in Martin Birch known as the professor of course um, who took Iron Maiden by the Scruff of the Neck and basically um, propelled them into commercial superstardom or at least began the journey for them. This album reached number one in the UK it was on the chart for 35 weeks it went to, well, 191 in the Billboard 200 on its first release, but ultimately climbed to 33 with subsequent releases. It spent a whopping 165 weeks on the charts in all in America and went platinum both here and over the uh, water. Um, the track listings, well, it's a nice compact eight-track album, four on each side, uh, side one, Invaders, Children of the Damned, The Prisoner, and 22 Acacia Avenue and on the flip side the number of the beast the title track runs the hills gangland and hello be my name it's spawned two singles the title track which went to number 13 in the UK and then obviously runs the hills which went to number seven and it features Eddie Edward the head Eddie uh the mascot are on the cover as all Iron Maiden uh, albums have done and the artwork for that is by Derek Riggs and I'm sure we'll talk about the artwork as well but there you go. That is the number of the beast. It was possibly, from my memory, the most anticipated album release of its time. I remember exactly where I was when I, when it came out and where I bought it from. And I had it on repeat for weeks on end, absolutely weeks on end. It's a monster album. There's no doubt about that. Um, how did you two get on with it? Presumably there was nothing new here. I assume you're really familiar with this, both of you.
2: Oh, it, it's a bit like, you know, going back and listening to Led Zeppelin or Purple's Machine Head again, isn't it? And I don't know about you two, but I got I tried to get back into that the first time I heard it, Frame of Mind, because there's so so many tracks on it that one knows so well. Um, and I do I, I do think it's a game changer. There's no doubt. You know, there's all the rumours, aren't there, around? Did Deano jump or was he pushed? But there's no doubt that. Harris felt that his songwriting was constrained by what his vocalist could deliver. I love it. I just absolutely love this album. It's been a joy listening to it.
0: Yeah, obviously I come at it from a slightly different standpoint, having not been there um, in 82, whenever it was released. um, I just segued from Van Halen to Motley Crue and went went the American route, having, uh, having bypassed, you know, not deliberately um the, the sort of early mob stuff and um so I, I didn't come to this album until probably about 84 85. i mean it almost doesn't need reviewing does it it's just such an it's just such a phenomenal record um it's not to say it's perfect is it, it isn't but it's, it's iron maiden perfect which is a different thing isn't it it's almost its own level of, of metal they are metal i've said that before when we did peace of mind I don't mind repeating myself, because I'm 56, I repeat myself a lot. But, I mean, to me, this is Iron Maiden, are heavy metal. The two words are almost kind of interchangeable. And this album screams heavy metal, doesn't it? The look, the album cover, the songs, the song titles, the song names, the look of the band, you know, the fans who love them. Everything about it is just, it's just, I was doing some research for Ride the Lightning, which I'm talking about later, and I came across that quote from Lars Ulrich, who said that, famously reckoned that, Iron Maiden were 10% cooler than any other metal band. High praise from him, and it's true, isn't it? They just, they just exude metal, and, and this album does exude that. I don't. I, I guess you two will know better than me because you're far bigger Maiden fans than I am. I, I guess it's regarded as their high point commercially. I would imagine probably was. I don't know. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the, the debut album, but let's go post-Diana because you know this is the, this is the lineup. This is the golden lineup, isn't it? Well, not quite. Obviously, McBrain for the but. But on this album, I still think there's a couple of tracks that I, I don't quite enjoy massively. But then again, there's two, uh, there's two tracks on this album that I make absolutely no apology for still loving. They were chart hits. They, were, they are massive singles. They are still massive singles in my eyes, and, and they're marked accordingly. And just one final thought. You made the point about Steve Harris' band and everything. This album, to me, and I wouldn't know, because, again, you'll have to help me out on this, but the Harris-Dickinson partnership, took this must have taken this to another level that they needed a dickinson didn't they because i mean we don't know whether diana would have been able to deal with what was coming next from from harris's astonishing mind but dickinson certainly could couldn't he and that was the that seemed to me like the magic formula forget all the musicianship of the rest of the band which is brilliant but that was the kind of that that was the missing ingredient wasn't it dickinson
1: yeah i i don't think um I mean, I love the first two albums; absolutely adore them. I probably prefer the the debut album to this one, and I don't think I think this is a better album, but but I have more affection for the for the first one because I was there for that one as well, and um and that was a massive release as well. But yeah, I think I think without without Dickinson, Maiden would have continued to be effectively that pub band made good that. You kind of were on a bigger stage and you were pleased for them because they were good lads and they'd done well for themselves. But they would never, I don't think, you know, you're talking here about a band that went on to dominate the world before you know, before Metallica dominated the world, Maiden dominated the world. And would they have got to that stage without Bruce Dickinson? Absolutely no way. Not, not in my view. Not, uh, Not a hope in hell. Yeah, I like Paul Diano's vocals. I like he. I thought he was right for the band at the time, for the style of music that Steve Harris was writing for him. But yeah, I mean the limitations were massive, massive. The one thing that I did want. to, I, I mean, as I, as I was listening through through this this week, the one thing I kept coming back to was, Maiden fans will always type *Peace of Mind* as their kind of totemic Maiden album. I personally, I think this is a better album. I mean, well the scores will determine it. I'm, I think this is pure maiden. This is almost like unfiltered maiden. This is maiden without the prism of commerciality and you know and the, the sort of the, the, the record company step it, standing on their necks going give us a single, give us a single. Um, it was almost an accident. To, I mean, Steve Harris talked about being absolutely gobsmacked. He said you know you, you don't go. He said we didn't come out of the studio thinking we'd made a classic album. We thought we'd come out having made a decent, solid album. But he said nothing prepared us for what happened after it was released. So I think it's really interesting that Maiden fans would probably you own know, hardcore Maiden fans. And if you're a hardcore Maiden fan, drop a sign and let us know. But I think they would cite Peace of Mind as the release, the, the kind of defining Maiden release.
2: I'd love to know. Um, but it's not a patch on this.
1: No, yeah, I don't think it's
2: a patch on this. <laughs> let's be let's in the scores the reason I said it was a game changer was I know you know there's some great tracks on this first couple of albums but but there are some there's some stuff on this that set the real blueprint for
1: everything they did afterwards now you'd expect wouldn't you for this album to open with the title track given how strong that was in terms of you know single and chart success but it doesn't it opens with a song called Invaders which I actually think is far more it's almost an inspired choice because it it picks up really where where Killer's left off. And you don't really hear the best of Bruce Dickinson on this either. I mean, there's a very obvious step up in production terms and delivery and execution, all the rest of it. But it is far more the sort of the punk roots. Um, And it becomes, interestingly for me, slowly more commercial as you go through the album. Um, But it sets off a hell of a lick, doesn't it?
2: This is one of those albums that, it's like back in black. I, I mistakenly would play the other way round. A place I'd be first. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, yeah. This is, one, this is the one that could have been on the previous albums. It's much more straightforward. It's, we've still got the, some of the classic licks that they've got. But yeah, you don't really know what's coming. And I don't know if they did that deliberately. People are used to the previous two. They think this on. Oh yeah, more of the same. And that they don't know just what's going to happen later on. Because uh, for me, yeah, it's, this is, this is a, not as strong as the rest of the album, really.
0: And I think, I think it was Steve Harris, or certainly one of them, seemed to give the impression that it was just an okay opener, as if... I mean, hardly last resort stuff, but as if they, you know, it didn't compare favourably, therefore, with the rest of the album. What I was going to ask you is, based on what you heard from Killers, was this like going from Scott to Johnston? For, for Iron Maiden going from Dianno to to Dickinson or not really, and did Maiden and yeah. did Maiden's fans appreciate
1: it? Yeah, I think well, I think they did appreciate it because I think musically the band took a step up and we all looked at Paul Dianno in the day and went, well, you don't look like a rocker because you've got yeah, short sure. yeah. hair. yeah, you look like a bit like you've just stepped away from the bar, which in actual fact you probably had most nights. No. <laughs> um, but this was. Um, I think, was it Scott to Johnson? No, I think the gulf was wider than that. I think I think Dickinson is so good, so capable, that it's almost a different band. Whereas ACDC, I think Scott and Johnson were very similar in terms of neither of them can sing particularly as well. <laughs> yeah. They're brilliant. They're brilliant for what, for what ACDC are. I love them both. But you're talking about a, a singer yeah. whose delivery is almost operatic here. Yeah. Um, a, against a, you know, a barrow boy. You know what I think? And I think this was a brave choice for track two because they slow this right down, Children of the Damned, don't they? And it's all quite introspective and thoughtful. And But you do get a hint now of, it's almost Charlotte the Harlot, isn't it? It's almost that kind of storytelling that Harris is so good at. But this is this is the first indication that the epic song is not going to be a stranger to Iron Maiden for very long. And in fact, by the end of the album, we've got one, and we have full-blown proper epic.
2: This is the introduction. Here's his range. He can hit the these low these low long notes. He can sing quiet. He can sing high. He can sing with energy. It's got the classic. I mean, it's slow heavy, slow heavy, fast 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 structure at the song. <laughs> yeah. uh, solos are brilliant. You've got the first taste of Dickinson singing with the guitar solo, um, and then the great big operatic ending. For me it's like, here you go, we've stepped up and knocked two, thank you very much.
0: Have they ever done anything like this on the first two albums?
1: I suppose Remember Tomorrow on the first one was a bit like this. Okay. Yeah, yeah and Phantom the Opera to an extent.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's just interesting because I was just, you know, we're going to be talking about Fade to Black, you know, not not long from now, you know, that, that ability where you don't sense, you don't see that ballad kind of feel coming, but it ain't a ballad, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's it's, it's so damned heavy, so well phased, as well as phrased, yeah. which, is, which this track is. So As Richard made the point, you know, there's sort of different sections to it, there's elements of Sabbath in there, you know, and, and but, but ultimately all... Just drenched in this in this maiden struggling for the word bigness. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's, it's just so damn large. And obviously, as you know, these epics would become you know not so much a calling card because there was far more to them than that. But they they, they did this incredibly well. It doesn't feel like a long song.
1: No, it doesn't. It doesn't, and it is a long song. But mm. you're right; it doesn't feel like it. But you know, this is probably the the first time that we're really introduced to the Maiden Gallop as well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is present on the first two albums a little bit, but it's not, it's not a signature in the way that it, it becomes on this album. Um, so anyway, Children of the Damned, uh, Track to Side 1, and that gives way to uh, The Prisoner, which starts with the opening sort of dialogue or voiceover from the, uh, from the TV show, because it's based on the TV show The Prisoner. And the the song was started when Clive Burr wasn't in the studio. So this is um, Bruce Dickinson playing around on the drums, which Clive Burr then kind of took on and turned into that swing drum beat um, that you hear at the beginning of it. It's absolutely fantastic. I love this track.
0: Yeah, no, this is great. Absolutely great. I I kind of find the opening a little bit underwhelming, if I'm honest. But but it's almost it's it's scene setting, isn't it, for for a great track? It takes over a minute to kind of kick into gear. And, but but when it rocks, it rocks. The other thing I was going to mention was um, there's some brilliant. Well, it's throughout the album. There's just bits and pieces when you pick it up. Steve Harris is the bass player. Never mind, never mind, never mind the, the band leader. And um, Jesus, I, I mean, I was watching some videos earlier of, of him doing uh, Run to the Hills. It's phenomenal. His bass line. There's a lot, almost like a Joy Division bass line before Dickinson's manic. Um, now you, was it now you see me, now you don't. The musicianship of this band is. It's so hard. It's so good, isn't it? It's, it it's, you can't do this unless unless you're immensely talented. And he's obviously a great bass player.
2: This for me defines the mob. The heaviness, the, the melody. and it, It's just so, this, and particularly the, the the chorus. is so hooky, it just gets in your head.
1: And so we move on to the side closer, um, which was a song. I think I'm right to say was written by or brought to the band by Adrian Smith. The melody, the, the actual comment musical element of the song. Um, The lyrics obviously refer to a woman of the night known as Charlotte the Harlot, who first appears on the debut album, uh, makes another appearance on Killers, and um, and this I think is, unless I'm mistaken, somebody will put me right from wrong, but I think this is the last time we meet Charlotte in um, Maiden's career, but I think this is one of the best songs they've ever done I think it's absolutely brilliant it's so maiden but it's it just and again it's it's so modern with that kind of soaring guitar riff and then the sort of the post-punk sensibilities about it brilliant love it
0: yeah I'm i thinking that punkiness myself I can hear it in that in that sort of drive and it really is there isn't it but, but yeah that's the time isn't it another great thing about Harris is that his he won't just write an ordinary song will he I mean, there's, there's got to be a story to be told. And that's a feat in itself. Very solid track. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of odd middle section where it slows down. I don't quite get it, other than it sort of acts as a prelude to, um, to quite the finish. Yeah, and it's a, it's a hell of a way to finish the side as
2: well as a track. I mean, this is almost progressive rock in terms of just so many different sections and colours they've got into, what is it, six or so minutes. Brilliant end
1: to song, And it does bring the side to a close. So um, back in the day, you flip the record over and you're met with a Vincent Price sound alike. What did you say his name was? I didn't actually bother to look it up. I knew it was a Vincent Price. Barry Clayton, Mm -hmm. I think. So the story to this is that Birch and Harris wanted to create a particular uh, atmosphere with the first four lines of the song, not the spoken intro, the actual song. And Dickinson said they spent four hours trying to nail it down. And he was tearing his hair out and throwing furniture around by the end of it. He was so frustrated that um, they were being so pernickety. And eventually, when they got it right, uh, when when he delivered it in the way that Harrison Birch wanted him to, he he said, what what was different about it? And he said, I didn't get it at the time, I kind of get it now. So, but then they asked him to do the scream, and he said it was absolutely the right time because he was so frustrated that he just nailed the scream on the first on the first take. This was a massive single. It was although "Runs the Hills" did better. This was the this was the track that opened Maiden up to a whole new audience, um, and it's the one that I think the the album cover artwork really kind of marries up to this track, doesn't it? And the, the artwork on this album is fantastic.
2: They are accused of being Satanists, weren't they, with uh, this song and the album cover by people who clearly haven't done any reading of the lyrics. Uh, what can you say about this song? Um, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's been played so much, we know it so well, we know every single note of this, um, and this was the one I tried to just erase and listen, try and listen to it for the first time.
1: Yeah, because it's
2: just. It's just genius, you know. It is the the start, the, the that build at the start under his under his voice, and you say then that then that scream, um, the breaks in it. It's just the the solo.
1: <laughs> is, is this not the best solo you've ever heard on anything in your life? It's just absolute fucking genius.
0: But it, it just—it's within the parameters of the song, isn't it? The whole song just just it just embraces it beautifully, and then yeah, that ping out as well. But to go from one stonking rip and you think you're happy into a second one, you know, within one track, and then pick it up with the, that the gallop, you know, it just takes it on a pace. Um, I thought the scream was the magic of production. I didn't know it was legit. I They doesn't do that live. It's just a phenomenal, the ultimate galloper. The absolute ultimate galloper.
1: So, um, if you thought that was good, yeah. <laughs> then <laughs> the next track, track two, side one. I mean, was there is there a better track two, side one? Um, do you know, we talk a lot about album uh, about songs that are overplayed, songs you've heard too much, songs that, and I certainly talk about songs that I don't ever have to hear again. I love them; don't need to hear them again. I've heard them often enough, thank you. This one runs the hills. I can listen to over and I could listen to this until the day I die quite happily. Just think it's brilliant. It's an absolutely perfect song.
2: Now it's, a, it's a track that just the initial drum beats within a bar of a drum beat, you know what it is. And then again, this is the thing, Dickon, what Dickinson brings in terms of him singing over the guitar notes. And I would say this is the gallop. Yeah. This is the biggest gal of this. You can imagine the horses, the horses, and, and the sing-along. They, they didn't realise when they came out of the studio they had created something that hundreds of thousands of people would sing back at them.
0: It's an absolute blistering pace, isn't it? It's um, in terms of heaviness. It doesn't really matter. Does it? It's the, the speed of it, but the control as well. Um, and I was, I was watching, again, I was on YouTube earlier watching the, the original, the official video with the them pesky engines and all the sort of black and white. That's about the only place you'll find it now, I would imagine. I don't suppose that that won't circulate on mainstream TV anymore. But yeah, no, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. But to follow Number of the Beast, um, I mean, you know, what sort of juxtaposition is that in in world metal terms? I mean, that's right up there, isn't it?
1: We leave Runs the Hills for um, another reasonably quick song, Gangland. Which again is just another riot of riffs and hooky choruses and brilliantly guitar work and that kind of staccato gunfire vocal approach as well, which really works well on this track. And yeah, you know, they just they just keep. I mean, all right, this is a step down from what the last two tracks, but it's not a very big step down, and it just keeps getting better. The album as a whole just keeps getting better. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because this, it was a toss of the coin,
0: wasn't it? This or Total Eclipse, which one was the B-side to, was it Run to the Hills? And which one went on the album? Um, and Harris said that if Total Eclipse had been on the album instead of Gangland, it would have been a better album. I disagree. I, 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 I like Total Eclipse, but I much prefer this. I think this, is a, I think this is a, maybe it's the speed of it.
2: The speed of Gangland. I mean, turn up the distortion. And you've got a thrash song.
0: Yes, yes, old school speed, old school
1: speed metal. It eventually, does give way to well, the first true epic uh, that we hear from Iron Maiden in a career um, following of epics, a following career full of epics. But this is this is the metal version of the green green grass of home. <laughs> Hallowed be thy name. A story of a man sitting on death row, waiting the gallows pole and um oh, it's just a brilliant, full of atmosphere brilliantly told story, there's a bit of clunky phrasing in it but you kind of forgive that, it's uh, it's a joyous 7 minutes and 11 seconds that to frankly go on for 4 hours and I'd oh. be quiet
0: I've seen many people call it their cashmere but, I mean I know Mark you're probably the wrong man to <laughs> in terms of they're bona fide, a recognisable, this is us, epic, uh, in that sense. Um, and I get that. I get that.
2: This is fucking enormous. <laughs> this, this It's just epic. Oh, Jesus. So, so I, I won't give it away yet, but I mean, this is vying for top spot. It's just, there are so many bits of it, so many layers. Again, it's completely driven by Harris. Bits of it stick in your head. I I absolutely love this song, and then and it, you know it, it's up and down and up and down and up and down, and then of course then that final quarter where it just goes and goes and goes. You get the final sing-along and then that huge orchestral finish. So I think I can understand why they did the album in this order because this second side. It, I mean, I it, think Crofty said, didn't he, when we talked to him a, a, a few weeks back um, the, 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 in terms of these four tracks and how this album finishes and how and, I've and, and just leaves you breathless. It's
1: mm. fantastic. So that galloping riff takes uh, the number of the beast out. Uh, we should do some highs and lows. Richard.
2: Oh, fucking hell, do we have to? <laughs> um, yeah. So it's not a bad song, but the opener doesn't quite live up to others on the album. And I don't want to choose. I don't want to choose my heart. I did did the Desert Island (laughs) thing. And it depends what mood I'm in. Jesus. So it's Between the Number of the Beast and Hallowed Be Thy Name. (sighs) It's so hard. I'll give it to Hallowed Be Thy Name. It's so hard, though, because these are two of the best songs ever in.
1: I can feel your pain. I can feel it from here. Steve.
2: I can't match that torment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've got a few fours and fives. Um, (laughs) You're going to dislike me. I don't care. Don't cross-examine me. Um, 22 Acacia Avenue is my low point. Um, And high-wise, well, I've given them both the same score, but I will say
1: number of the beast. Okay, well, Milo, I'm with, with Richard. I think Invaders just doesn't quite reach the heights of the rest of the album. And I've got three tracks, which are the same three tracks as you've all got, scoring very closely. I've no doubt about that. Um, and I also will go for How There you go. That was Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast, And um, do you know what? I've got a feeling that one might might just be pushing the top five, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but anyway, time to move on. And um, yeah, we're going to fast forward by two short years, 1984, Metallica, Ride the Lightning. Steve.
0: Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, and I'd like to think that... If Number of the Beast is a contender for uh, for top ten honors, top three honors perhaps, then uh, I would suggest Ride the Lightning may well be too. Um, it's right up there in, in in that league as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it goes back to the first time that I heard it, which was um, etched in my memory. The, a second floor flat in Hastings, I do believe, in August September 1984. Help me out, Mark, because you had bought the album, hadn't you?
1: I had, and if I remember. You laughed when you first heard it. I didn't did. I we, we, we played "Fight Fire with Fire" and you were almost on the floor laughing at the at the preposterousness of it. Um, and then and then it grew, didn't it? Then it, it grew. It
0: did grow. It did grow. Wait, I mean, you had to put it into context. As, as, as I said earlier, I was this Van Halen fan. It was quite happy listening to "Jump." Thank you very much. I mean, um, and you stuck on. Yeah, well, from the top, "Fight Fire with Fire," the intro, fine. And then bang, um, everyone knows the song. And I just thought I'd been hit by a fucking lorry. It was, uh, and, and what else can you do but laugh? You either go to hospital or you laugh. And, and we laughed. And I sat there four minutes after sitting down and just thinking, what the fuck was that? <laughs> what had just happened? And then, of course, the album. But we loved it. We laughed and we loved it. it grew and then the album goes into the title track. And then it comes on to, well, I'm guessing, I'll second guess your favourite track, For Whom the Bells up. and you're three tracks into this, and it's it's just become, I was going to say, love at first listen, that's not quite true, clearly, but it didn't take many listens before the the, the full majesty of this um, of this astonishing, I've never heard anything like those three tracks straight off the bat to start an album, and there started, yeah, my Metallica journey, um, got a record player, my parents kindly bought me Ride the Lightning um, for Christmas, and, and we were away. So Ride the Lightning, uh, Metallica's second album, lazily referred to as a thrash album, probably because it followed Hot on the Heels of Kill 'Em All, their debut, which was, I think we've all agreed, was kind of the archetypal thrash album of a kind of new wave of thrash, if you exclude the likes of the Moted and things like that. But Ride the Lightning was so different, so very, very different. I mean, yes, it was heavy, colossally heavy. Um, but the, 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 the broadening of the brushstrokes that they hinted at um, on Kill 'Em All, they lashed on big time here. Um, so you've got, they're developing all these different ideas um, to the extent of the scope of this album. And again, thankfully, it's only eight tracks. It's so huge and rich and varied. And um, and I hate to use the word, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking. I've, I just don't like the word, but I'm going to use it. It's a word that's used too often, but it's definitely applicable here. Rise and the Lightning is um, a groundbreaking piece of work as far as I'm concerned. And it was released in nineteen eighty-four, July the twenty-seventh. It had been recorded between February and March of that year um on Music for Nations. It clocks in at forty seven twenty-five. The producer is Fleming Rasmussen. The reason being that they basically couldn't afford to record in California. I mean that's the bottom line. They're the, they're the biggest band in the world, but uh uh-uh, uh, not back then. And Lars Ulrich being Danish knew knew of Rasmussen. Rasmussen apparently Said he didn't have Metallica, I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, but Ulrich had seen Rasmussen's work on Rainbow's Difficult to Cure, thought he'll do it, thought he'd be cheaper given that we're in Copenhagen and that's how they got the um, the album effectively out on the cheap. Uh, Sweet Silence Studios in Copenhagen. Um, you know the lineup, we'll talk about classic lineups, I think this is the classic lineup. Hetfield on vocals, Hammett on guitars, the late great Cliff Burton on bass and Lars Ulrich on drums, it didn't chart massively well which is no great surprise given um the kind of music it was and the shock appeal at the time 87 in the uk was its high point 48 in the us it's gone on to sell six million copies um stateside so people got the message um pretty quick four talented young musicians finding themselves and where they want to be on an album um which at pretty much every level um as far as i'm concerned is breathtaking certainly of its time, it was breathtaking, stands the test of time, better than so, so many albums um, of this genre um, and from that period. Um, and critically, it, it, it was a staging post with a band. Kill'em All was, I, I love Kill'em All for its ferocity, um, it just on the money thrash. It was just, It was just so exciting, but with the hints of what was possible, and this was what was possible. And of course, then. Ulrich arrogantly claimed that, you know, within years, Kiss fans and Twisted Sister fans and Queen fans will all be loving Metallica. And we kind of laughed. But the man was right, you know, his arrogance wasn't misplaced. I mean, the Metallica are just that kind of be all and end all, this all encompassing heroic metal band They were taken on the baton from, you know, great bands further back. And they are just the biggest noise in, in metal. Ride the Lightning is an exceptional piece of work and I think that's about all there is to it.
2: Yeah, Ride the Lightning was my introduction really to, to Metallica. A friend of mine played me, um, uh, well, he it it, it, it played me a couple but, uh, of, of tracks but I mean, not surprisingly, it was Fade to Black that, that captured my imagination. Yeah, delicate thing that I was and, <laughs> and it was that that, that hooked me in terms of, okay, yeah, these, uh, yeah, they, they, they can play some interesting stuff, can't they, these guys? And for me, if you think about, you uh, think about um, Kill 'em All and you think about Master of Puppets, this really is, for, for me, halfway between the two. There are tracks on here that, I mean, I'm not quite sure when they were written, precisely when they were written, but there are tracks on here, like the opener, that I just Kill'em all and then you've got tracks on here like Fate to Black and Bell Tolls that absolutely could be on on puppets. Um so I think it's this really really interesting staging post uh, for them. Yeah, they arrived and there had the studio with these you know these huge ambitions. You know, as they're particularly driven by by Ulrich. They were 21, 22 years old when they recorded this. Jesus Christ. I mean it's amazing. I mean, fair play to Rasmussen in terms of what he did uh, and and how he supported them in in helping to deliver what they wanted to do. Emotionally, I'm really connected to this album. I think it's arguably the most important album of their career.
1: I think I'd agree with that. Actually, I think it is. This album takes me back to Friday night, would have been probably mid-July, listening to the Friday Rock Show on Radio One, uh, and Tommy Vance, and so this would have been, well, I'd have had this album for about a month, six weeks before I played it to you, probably, Steve, Mm -hmm. and uh, he plays For Whom the Bell tolls, and I remember just being absolutely blown away. I genuinely hadn't heard anything like that before. Um, I'm not really sure I've heard anything quite like it since, either. In a strange way, and uh, I just thought that that is just amazing. And it was a bit of a culture shock when I bought the album and was confronted by "Fight Fire with Fire" and and "Ride the Lightning" to an extent uh, as the opening two tracks, because I was expecting I was expecting more of of what this album is, which is this album is just a masterclass in controlled aggression and and just restrained um brutality isn't it? it the and it goes in different directions and we'll talk about the tracks become but the variety and if this is rasmussen or if or, i don't know if it's rasmussen or it's kirk Hammett, or it's Hepfield, but but somebody somewhere has unleashed them as as musicians and songwriters because they you think tracks are going to go in a particular direction and on kill em all they did the kill all, On Killamall, the tracks all went exactly where you expected them to go, more or less, one or two exceptions. With this, you're constantly surprised. They slow it down, you think it's going to go into one of their kind of big, heavy, chuggy wrists that they have become their trademark. And it doesn't. It just goes at twice the speed it was going before it slowed down. You just think you're left in a kind of a battered heap in the middle of the road. Um, I think, although he's young, I think um, Hetfield's voice is is so much more mature, isn't it, than it was on Kellermore. They have grown in, in the intervening year. And bear in mind, this is a band that go into the studio on February the 20th, and they come out of the studio having completed all of their parts 22 days later. And I think about what I can achieve in three weeks. I can barely even write my own name in that time. Now, so... <laughs> For them to have gone in and done this in less than a month to me is just mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. This is a fantastic album. So four tracks on each
0: side and we talk about um, the maturing of Metallica's songwriting styles on this album and a sort of broadening of their understanding of music, how to apply it within the parameters of what is still basically, an essentially thrash approach to how they utilize different skills and fields to make this extraordinary sonic adventure this clever ahead of its time soundscape that changed the laws of what is and would be possible in this genre but anyway, first, fight fire with fire um this is straight off kill them all. I mean you've got that lovely nice twinkly acoustic guitar intro and uh, friends that's that's just that's just a dude um and you know what's coming and come it does it's it's just an absolute slam dunk of a riff which then goes into a slam dunk at breakneck speed of a riff which in turn goes into an absolutely towering menacing sinister onslaught and i adore it it's right up there with whiplash and angel of death and hammerhead obviously um, it's just one of those great out-and-out thrash explosions. When you need a thrash explosion, keep it simple, folks. Just stick on fight fire with fire. Priceless. What a gem. An extraordinary way to open an
2: album. I do wonder, with the acoustic intro, because it was Burton's influence, wasn't it, on it? Mm. They thought they'd stick it on to really annoy the die-hard fans who just obviously sigh. <laughs> yeah. and, and finally, it would it would get going again. It carried on where kill all left off, and it's just straight ahead, no holes barred. No, it's not complicated, not layered. Just beat you around the head, Metallica.
1: Yeah, nothing more to add, really. It's um, it's an absolutely brutal start, and 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 a, a real statement.
0: Yeah, It is a statement, and. Um, and th- had they been doing Kill 'Em All part two, of course, the statement would have carried on the same way, but it didn't, did it? So we, we, the, the second track is the title track. Ride the Lightning, a song about an innocent man sent to the chair. And we come down slightly in pace, we think, not in heaviness, um, into this kind of one of those more, well, if you were comparing with Kill em All, and we, we must stop doing it. It's a kind of search and destroy bounce along, isn't it, this track. It's um, far more moving parts to it than the opener. <laughs> it's not difficult. One of two... Songs on the album Co-written by the band's Former guitarist Dave Mustaine And it's just one of those multi paced classics um, That Metallica Do so well You know Starting off at a pace Changing up Quite often on the back Of a Kurt Hammett solo Which was usually The bridge between two things Bludgeoning riff uh, It's a dramatic It's great It's a great song
1: This is like the Flash equivalent Of the green green grass Of home. <laughs> <laughs> Another song about Being on death row Yes uh, this, this for me is classic Metallica. It's got that, that signature, I don't know how you describe it, it's just that bouncy, chuggy riff that they do so well. I and mean, you love it when you hear it. You just go, oh yes, it's that, it's that. <laughs> Every time I hear this track, I just think, oh, this is just wonderful. Immerse myself in this bath of noise. Fantastic.
2: It, it's slightly slower. It's the mid, this, that mid-pace that allows them to get heavier. For me, this is where the album really starts. This is the first one that provides the glimpse of, of the future. Brilliant.
0: It's a fantastic track, and it's the prelude to, well, one of, one, of, one of Metallica's true highlights, career-wise, I think. They've done so many, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Oh, the joy of the first two minutes of this track is a joy that cannot be paralleled. In anything in anything you do in life musically or any or any other way i don't know there's an amazingness um about the starter for whom the bell tolls it's not it's not even that original you know tolling bells and doom and gloom and but i just feels so awe-inspiring and then there's the rest of the track ain't bad either it just it just carries on it's just i love that start
1: you you won't hear me say this very often but it's the drums that make this <laughs> It's, it's all Rick's drums. It's just infectious, isn't it? And, and and then you get that juggernaut soaring riff that kind of just cuts straight through it. And I, I love the rest of the track. You know, it's one that's easy to sing along to. And yes. you spit the lyrics. You know, the, Hepfield's spitting this stuff out. I and mean, yeah. it's, it's fantastic.
0: The interesting thing about the music is it's, it's just basically crash, bang, crash, bang, crash, bang. I mean, the simplicity is there, isn't it? But it's just, there's clearly so much more to it than that. Otherwise, we wouldn't love it as much as we do.
1: I mean, I think I was lucky. This this track, the first two minutes of this track was the first two minutes I'd ever heard of Metallica. Mm. I mean, what what a way to be introduced. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On a, on, a, on a sad note, this is
0: one of two tracks that was on their later album, S&M. No, 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 no. No, just no. Well, luckily, that's outside our parameters, so we won't be talking about that part of shite. What we will be talking about is Fade to Black, which is um, track four. The final track on side one, and um, Richard's going to talk plenty about this. It's going to mean that much to him. The first single and the song that peaks at number 100 in the Swiss charts. I mean, how good is that? And, and, and in 2019 was ranked number 2,991 in a Portuguese streaming chart neither stats which come anywhere close to beginning to describe the majesty of fate of black, a song that wasn't universally well received by some Metallica fans, and I get that I do get that they just didn't get why a thrash band would would do this, but that which yeah. merely to my mind it illustrates that they're not your conventional thrash band that that that's not where they want to be this is as, yes, this is as close to a ball as Metallica want to do. But it's a style that's almost unique to them. And we hear it again later, obviously, in tracks like Welcome Home um, and One. And it's an extraordinary, it's, it's your hallowed being name. It's just an extraordinary thing that, that, that builds and evolves. And only they in the thrash world can, can do this or do do this
2: uh, at this level. An
0: astonishing track.
1: I can't speak.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't say too much. It's the emotion. This is such an emotional song. And the the way they use that power, the the, the power chords to just, when you've got that that emotion, that, that sadness, that anger, whatever it is bursting around inside you wanting to get out, no one else does it like this. It's just
1: perfect. I'm not going to add much to it either. I just think it's a monumental track. Absolutely monumental.
0: Uh dear yeah. side two begins with trapped under ice. It's kind of a mirror image at the start of trap of uh, side one, kind of. It's not quite as ferocious as Fight Fire with Fire, but it, it, it's starting off in that kind of vein. One of their more unheralded numbers. In fact, the first two tracks on on side two are probably two of their more unheralded numbers. This is this is disturbing when you know about the. I remember seeing of one of the omens and and. Uh, uh, some guy was floating, fell into the ice and was trying to swim around and couldn't get out. And that that scared me for, for years. And this is a, about a bloke who's cryogenically frozen but knows he's alive, which is just a horrible thought process. I just can't get my head around that at all. It's very unsettling. Um, it's a song they never play live, um, I, which I think is probably more to do with the fact they've got a great back catalogue anyway. But yeah, no, it's almost a straight ahead head piece of thrash. Or is that oversimplifying it?
1: No, I think it's, it's in the context of this album, I think it's fairly ordinary. Mm. Um, and you know, it's, it's I'm not giving anything away. I don't think it's my low of the on the album. And, you know, it's not a bad track, but if I had to skip a track, this would be the one I'd skip.
2: Yeah, not much. To. It, it's another killer all track. Um, but do slow it
0: down for for the second track. This is now. This is this is the enigma. This is the curio. This is escape. Which I think, I think's a gem. I, I think it's an absolute gem, I really do. I know most Metallica, I say most Metallica fans, I'm a Metallica fan, so some Metallica fans aren't bothered about it. And they as a band apparently loathe it and will never play it. They played it only on the, on the tour when they did the whole album. Hetfield's called it his worst nightmare when he had to play it live, which probably explains why they didn't do it until 2012. I mean, the, the story goes that they were apparently trying for a radio hit. It doesn't strike me that at all. This strikes me as a really good Metallica song made perfect by the outro, which is just uh, with the sirens and, and, and somber, brutal riff. Um, I think there's a lot to like about Escape, and I, I'm sorry if I've gone on, but I, it, it pains me that other people don't like it.
1: There was a the, um, the record company that wanted a, a more commercial, more accessible song. And they kind of they just pulled this out and knocked it out literally knocked it out um it's my second best track on the album for Mm. me i absolutely love it i think it's it's fantastic Mm. um and you're right it is it's absolutely made by that outro i don't know why the band don't like it i don't know why other fans don't like it for me it's it's a solid more than solid metallica
0: song Mm. well Opinions may be divided over escape, but they will not be divided. Well, not not divided among us, thankfully. And, um, nor will they be over creeping death. So let it be written. So let it be done. This is, um, this is their classic, a six and a half minute classic, which we've seen them doing less than five, Mark, haven't we? But network, which was quite the fucking thing that was. That was, um, (laughs) Jesus, um, this is just vast, absolutely. A beast, an absolute beast of a track. An epic on a biblical scale. It's a fantastic riff. It's just an extraordinary song. It's
1: it's cleverer than Trapped Under Ice and Fight Fire With Fire, though. Even though it goes at 100 miles an hour, it's cleverer. Oh, yeah. Not, uh, not oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I'm not, I, I wouldn't put it in the same... If, I wouldn't even put it in the same bracket of those two. No, I, I no. think it's a far superior track. I think it's a different level of track. Geniuses.
2: This track paved the way for battery and... And, and Master of Puppets, the tempo in terms of it, it's fast enough, but still that balance of melody and power on it is, is it's, it's just immense. The, the first recording they did, they tried with, with Rasmussen in the studio, was, was, was creeping death, but Metallica was delighted with the recording. And Rasmussen couldn't quite work out why Lars thought it was perfect. And he said to Lars, why are you starting on the upbeat all the time? And, and Lars looked at Rasmussen and said, what the fuck is an upbeat? Because Lars had do was do all the fills. He wasn't that bothered about the rhythm in between them. <laughs> oh, that's priceless. <laughs>
0: anyway, the question you have to ask yourself, of course, is how the fuck do you follow Creeping Death? Well, You do it with a nine-minute instrumental. That's what you do. (laughs) That's a brave call. The call of Cthulhu is a brave call. And does it work? I don't know. But it's, um, you know, you're only putting up eight tracks. And one of them, an eight-minute, fifty-three 53-second instrumental. Um, Does it work? Yes and no. I think this would have sat more comfortably on justice puppets. I, there's some wonderful bits in this. I mean, there are some wonderful bits in, in, in Simple Enough song.
1: It, it rambles and drifts, doesn't it? That's the problem with this. And it's a bit repetitive. By the end of it, it's starting to grace on me a bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I just don't know whether I want
1: it.
2: It's, it, uh, it you've just got to submit. It, it, this is one of the best pieces of classic uh, instrumental metal ever. I think it's brilliant. I think you've just got to let it go, and, I, and how bold of them hmm. I stick this on the end of their second album. That's off to them. It would interest me, if, I mean, and what makes it even better is when you put an orchestra behind it. Then it is monumental.
0: <laughs> There's no need. Don't make it worse. <laughs> it's an instrumental anyway. Why the fuck do you need violins with it? Jesus, it <laughs> is what it is. So let's have some highs and lows then. Try and find
1: me some lows. Well, I can find you a load. It's called Trapped Under Ice. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's fake to Black? It's the standout track. Okay, Richard.
2: Yeah, ditto. Yeah, trapped, um, trapped Under Ice for the lowest scoring. And uh, can I give a track eleven?
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Black. Brilliant.
0: Okay. Well, it's a clean sweep for Trapped Under Ice, and um, but. My 10 out of 10 moment has always been a creeping death and will always be. Um, and as I say, like Number of the Beast, I fancy there's going to be some scores there that are going to have Rider lightning challenging Led z 4 and Machine Ed and all those other boys that are at the top of our Hall of Fame. Now then, will the Black Crows be in such august company with their second album, Southern Harmony and Musical Companion? This was Crofty's, one of his left field choices, wasn't it? But um,
2: yeah. Richard, did we enjoy it?
0: Opening album sleeve notes.
2: Well, let's see, let's see. I, I did, I did. Um, yeah, so, were we? we're in 1992 now. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's the Black pros second album after *Shake Your Money Maker. It was uh, released a year and a half or so after that. I mean, band-wise, they got a new guitarist. They got a full-time... keyboard player, um, and they decided to to wind it back a bit, I guess, in sort of tempo terms. Where did it come from? Where did the name come from? So it was named after a
1: post-Civil War
2: book of hymns, first published in 1835. Apparently, it was often the sole source of musical literacy for many rural Americans. I'm presuming that uh, had that some some significance i mean yeah chris robinson uh, one of the robinson brothers and the, the vocalist still feels it was their finest record in their their classic album uh, but it got quite quite varied reviews i mean in rolling stone who i would have thought would have gushed over it only gave it three and a half out of five so there yeah it was a bit of a mixed reaction we'll come back to to what I think of it in a minute, uh, but some stats. So it was released in on May the 12th, uh, 1992, uh, recorded, well, it, it's unclear just when it was recorded, somewhere prior to that, apparently in eight hazy days in, in the studio. So it took them eight days to record it. They'd they done a lot of the work in advance, and it was just a case of getting it all, all captured. Um, it was produced uh, by a, George Draculias and uh, and the band and released on Rick Rubin's Deaf American label. Uh, It's a 10-tracker and uh, runs just over 50 minutes in length. And the studio uh, was quoted as various locations. Um, um, There must have been somewhere in those eight hazy days, you would have thought, but I couldn't find um, uh, um, specifically where. In terms of personnel, so you've got the Robertson brothers, Chris and Rick, Chris on vocals and percussion and harmonica, uh, Rich Robinson on guitar, uh, Mark Ford on guitar, so he joined to replace uh, Jeff Seas, who was there for the first album, uh, the guy called Eddie Harsh, for they got in on keyboards, and then Johnny Colt on bass and Steve Gorman on drums. A big load of people in support uh, on various backing um, vocals and percussion and everything else. And um, the other interesting facts, I don't know if uh, Steve knew this at the time, they were managed by our good old friend Pete Angelus who is uh, the uh, ex-manager of David Lee Roth and of course one half of the fabulous Picasso brothers. So chart-wise, um, it did pretty well. It went straight in at number one on the billboard in the US and spent 51 weeks on the charts there. And it did uh, number two in, in the UK, although only seven weeks in the chart here. Uh, it went double platinum in the US and uh, did pretty well around the world. Track listing wise, so five on each side. Side one is Sting Me, Remedy, Thorn in My Pride, Bad Luck, Blue Eyes Goodbye, and Sometimes Salvation. And then side two is Hotel Illness, Black Moon, Creeping. No, speak no slave my morning song and finishing with the only track not written by the robinson brothers uh, which was a cover of a bob marley song called time will tell yeah as we talked about right at the start i think production wise in terms of the balance of the instruments and the layers on this i i think is it's an absolutely fantastic album uh song wise yeah there are a few weaker moments um it's um it it would be nice to be a bit more varied tempo wise i feel but um as an album i i still really really enjoy listening to it how about you
1: well with apologies to crofty no it's not really for me i have to say a couple of tracks um really like and would make it onto a spotify playlist i can see why people would like it but for me it's just a bit too Samey, I suppose. I've warmed to it over the week. I've I feared for it in terms of how I would score it. I haven't scored it highly, but um but i am you know, it's all right. It's all right. Do you know what? It was one of those albums where I spent the week listening to it and I've tried listening to it in all sorts of different ways. I've I've sat with it and listened to it and sat passively and just let it kind of immerse myself in it. I've been I've listened to it while I've been doing other things, I've had it on while I've been working, I've been you know, I've had it on the car, and I've been driving to and from doing a school run and, you know, going to the shops. There's much a out to during these crazy times. So I've listened to it in all sorts of different ways, and and the, the the thing that kept happening was I kept zoning out. I got off, got to sort of like you know, track three side one, and and before I knew it, I was on track one side two, and I couldn't remember the last three songs. And it kept happening. It wasn't just once or twice. It kept happening. So. Yeah, I'm, my conclusion from that is it just doesn't, it doesn't make my ears prick up and take notice of it. A couple of good songs on it, but not for me. Steve?
0: Yeah, similar really. Yeah, it's, it's just not my cup of tea. Um, and that's all. <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. I'm not going to sit here and pick pint-sized holes out of this thing because I, they're not there to pick, I don't think uh it's just I it just hasn't floated my boat um there's three tracks on here that I really really like a lot of, and I'll listen to again and again. they grab me and which kind of infuriates me that there's the, the three you know normally in an album you don't like you struggle to find anything but there are three tracks on here that I think the world i think' great, you know great listens and um but I just don't fathom it it's just it's. I'm trying to figure out almost what the genre of music is. There's so many sort of, you know, in previous influences in there. I like the fact that, you know, we're in the early 90s and they're going down an almost Aerosmith route of fucking throwing the kitchen sink at stuff, you know, with harmonicas and gospel choruses and keyboards and, you know, congas and loads of different guitars and trying to be, there's a southern rock feel to it. There's a, there's a kind of faces feel to it. But ultimately. It just comes across as a kind of mush of blues and rock and soul. And I just found it got samey quite quickly. And um, it just ran out of legs very quickly. And like Mark, I've tried it in different locations as well, in different fields. And um, and I'll give it another go. I will give it another go. Thus far, it's not for me.
2: So, yeah, there are 10 tracks. And uh, side one starts with a track called Sting Me. Um, so apparently this is a, a song, well, so many at the time, all about sort of disapproval in the U.S. of government and greed, some connections to the L.A. riots. We've had a few songs about that over the very <laughs> yeah. This track certainly start, c- c- continues where Shake Your Money Maker left off, that sort of real upbeat, groovy, just foot-tapping Apparently, there were, there were two versions of this recorded, a slow one and a fast one. This is the faster one. Uh, well, I'm glad they, had, they included the faster one on this album because I think that you know this and the next track, it, it, it really just kicked the album off with a, with a good groove, a good load of energy. Yeah, and this is classic Black Crowes. Great layers, great voice, nice little guitar licks, backing vocals from the, the two ladies. Yeah, it's a nice start.
1: Good stuff. Yeah, I have to say, when I, when I first put this on, I thought, oh my god, I've you know, there's obviously something that I've completely missed. Because if the rest of the albums like this, then you know, frankly, I've got some glorious catching up to do. Uh, and sadly for me, that wasn't the case. But this is a really strong start. Lovely hook line, lovely melody, really good groove to it. Get the windows down, turn it up. Yeah, ticks all the boxes. At the opener.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I looked at the, um, I looked at the credits on, on, the, um, on the production side and spotted the name Brendan O'Brien, and I immediately thought, aye, I, aye, I, I, are we going to get another jackal here? There is a southern rock groove to this, and it, but it's also kind of, um, you know, a bit funky, a bit jazzy, um, and I love the kind of, you know, the, the, the female vocal, sort of Black Crows and the Supremes kind of feel to it, and I really like that. It's a, it's a really, really, almost effortlessly cool, this song. And to be able to do cool effortlessly is, is, is brilliant. Mellow, laid back, but it does rock. That solo's you know, to die for. And at this point, I'm thinking, yeah, bring it on.
2: And then, of course, it kicks straight into track two, which is one of those tracks. Three chords, and you know what the track is. Da, 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 uh, 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 into Remedy. Uh, most recognisable song, I would say, off of this album? Um, looking at two blank faces. I mean, it was the biggest hit. I mean, it, 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 they weren't a singles band. This reached the the giddy heights of 48 in in the Billboard, the overall Billboard. And uh, again, continuing this really good groovy start. This is a sunny sort of late summer afternoon, drinking beer, lying on your back. Just brilliant, brilliant song.
1: So I, I would have said that they were the song they were most known for was hard to handle. It was obviously a song they never even wrote. But I've never heard this before in my life. Before this week. Ah. Yeah. No, I like this. Yeah, you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's as good as the first one. The opening song. I don't think it's as good as um as the opening song of side two, but yeah, it's all right. So I, I'm quite happy at this point in my first Odyssey through it. Um I like the I like the female backing female harmony and um yeah I'm I'm happy yeah again it's, the, it's it's the feel it's it's that vibe I don't think it's as good as the first
0: track either and I'm not quite getting what you're getting rich with this um and I've listened to this song more than any other song on the album because I knew the stature of this song amongst Black pros fans and the fact that it did go well and I'm I'm trying to find things in it that I can't, and maybe I just need to let it wash over me a bit more. Maybe I'll get it then.
2: Well, maybe you will. Maybe you will. So Remedy gives way to track three, which is Thorn in My Pride, which is where it steps down and slows down. I'm fascinated to hear what you guys think of this, because I like the first two, two tracks in the album. This is my track of the album. I think is fantastic. The the layering, we talk about the production, the mix in this song, the balance, the the slow build of how the instruments just sort of build each other. We talked a bit with Iron Maiden about how the, the instruments sort of step forward and do their bit and then fade into the background. For me, the same happens on, on here. You know, it builds and builds and builds and it sits back down again. Uh, the soulful finish of it, Chris Roberts' voice is amazing on it. And yeah, this, this is real, real favourite song. Um
0: <laughs> starts really nicely. <laughs> Loads of emotion. Uh, I'm getting a little. There's a little bit of mountain in there. I, I like that. There's a nice floaty start to it, sort of thing that they would do with Trans Mike Allison. And then it, it does pick up. Yeah, I get that. The more guitar just glides along. It's very chilled. It is ever so chilled. And there's a beautiful tone to it. And that build is impressive because by the time he gets mad all the sort of honky-tonk piano going on and the gospel singing I'm kind of losing it a little bit um, and I'm wondering if this is just perhaps I know six is only a number but six minute track I, I think this is just close to being a bit too long but again it's that cool backbeat beat that runs through this album and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah it's,
1: yeah, it's slow and lazy and, you know, and it drifts in a perfectly nice way yeah, my ears aren't attuned to this because I've I've zoned out of this on more occasions than I care to remember so and, and and even when I'm when I've been concentrating on it I'm not hearing what you're hearing so no it's not for me
2: okay well let's move on to uh, track four which is uh, another well it, it's fairly melancholy I guess sort of bad blue eyes goodbye I, mean, I, <laughs> I did think as listening to this that um, with that really slow counting at the start uh, that Mark and Steve have probably fallen asleep before the, the track actually begins. It's quite raw. It's, it's very carefully recorded. You can hear the hum of the amplifiers if you uh, listen closely. And I, find I didn't manage to, to do it. Whereas I felt the last track, I was quite happy with it at, at, at six minutes. For this, this one, again, is a similarly you know, sort of six-minuter. Even for me, this is a bit long.
1: This is Pink Floyd
0: territory now. This is just this is numbing
2: me. <laughs>
0: this is why I'm getting Floyd all over, minus the solemnity. I yeah, it's yeah. this is testing my patience. And I quite like Chris Robinson's voice. I don't like it, funnily enough, on this track. Because I think he's almost trying to ham it up as a as a as a wannabe soul singer, which he's not. Um, I think he's better doing what he was doing, certainly on the first couple of tracks, personally.
1: It's a song that outstays its way of welcome, isn't it? I mean, the, the the thing is, there's no doubting the musicianship at all. This is this is not about whether it's uh, good songs or bad songs or well crafted songs or not well crafted songs. It's just about whether it speaks to you, isn't it? And I think I spend too much of my time with this album sitting in a smoky bar and not not in a never <laughs> good, well, good way. I can see there is a time of the in the night in a bar with a whiskey where this would be absolutely perfect. So I get it. I get I get the feeling the feel of it, and maybe I've been listening to it at the wrong time of day. Yeah, maybe it's simple as that. But yeah, this this just done half bang on.
0: I it's not it's not you, and but th- th- we need to rearrange the album as well because we've got a hat trip because we still got some time salvation to come. And and it's th- these things should have been split asunder. You know, it's um it's not a good three four five.
2: Okay, well let's uh, get on to the third of the. Steve's trio, um, which is uh, sometimes salvation, last track on side one. Similarly, slow. This is heavy blues, isn't it? I like this a bit more. I like the stop start. I think Steve Gorman's drumming on this is brilliant. Uh, This is a fantastic groove from him. And I feel that despite it being a slow song, they really did put Everything emotionally into it, so I, I warm to this more. I mean, classic, slow, really slow Southern blues song,
0: and into a, and into the, the crowd-pleasing finish as well. But um, I, again, it's the, the pace of this is just killing me. I mean, I, I don't mind. A, I don't mind a bit of stop-start, and yeah, no, it's this. My pleasure levels have plummeted at this point, especially when, especially when having heard Sting me. And, and knowing what's to come at the start of side two. You know, you, you you can see what, you can see the possibilities. It's just annoying me, that's all. That's all I'm saying.
2: Track one side two, which is hotel illness. And yeah, you're back, you're back to the openers, on you? You're back to shake your money maker. Uh, Sly guitars, harmonica, uh, much more bluesy, uh, much more groove. Uh, I mean, fairly... Fairly straightforward, but I mean, this is this is what they're good at.
0: I like straightforward. <laughs> I'm I'm straightforward. <laughs> if it's simple, it's good. I'm listening. To, I'm getting a bit of permanent vacation. Aerosmith here as well. I love that harmonica. It's just a really good feel. And yeah, it is. You know, but it's catchy, isn't it? There's that hooky beat. Um, it's a nice tune. You know it's a great tune, and that's, you know, that's ultimately what you want. Strip back to rock and roll basics, and it works really well. Yeah, outstanding! Great guitar work against the, the again that backbeat, that driving backbeat. Great stuff. Um, I'd love more of it. Marshall Tucker. I was thinking of Marshall Tucker when I was listening to this. That kind of, but with a chart-topping feel to it. I, I don't know how, how well it did commercially. It must have been a single, Richard, wasn't it? Surely. Uh, yeah, I think so. I
2: think
1: so. Yeah, I'm just getting a bit of that kind of blues rock ACDC vibe to it. I this I banged this straight onto a playlist when I heard it really like this song and we we'll happily listen to this in preference to certainly in preference to the three that preceded it
2: okay let's see if uh, the good feeling continues we um we get on to uh track seven uh, which is black moon creeping well wow. slows down again a bit doesn't it a bit of a darker song yeah there's sort of dual guitars on it harmonica a talk box on the guitar in the solo for me, this had a sort of an aeros, slow aerosmith kind of shuffle to it at the start. Of, uh, this is a perfectly good slow southern rock song, but it's not spectacular. No, it's
0: it's not. What's really interesting is that that, that kind of crazy um, sort of melding of, yeah, aerosmith with a kind of whiff of a Black Sabbath riff. You know, that's, it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a really interesting start. Ever so promising. And then it goes all a bit funky and gospely, and a sleazy guitar line holds it all together but I've got nothing in here that I
1: want to particularly. Yeah it's very Zeppelin-y isn't it, very zeppelin I yeah, I don't mind this, I quite like it, um, it's not it's not favourite. favorite uh, but it's more interesting and yes they've slowed it down a bit but there's a lot of variety within the song so it's not just a, a sort of a say monotone it's the wrong word but it's not just a flat kind of you know one size fits all approach to the song it's it rises and falls and there's some interesting stuff going so yeah don't mind this
2: blackman Creeping, his way to track eight which is no speak no slave which i well it builds some energy again doesn't it i mean i i like this track i, th- I think the um the guitar and the bass together and then that bass line continues throughout the whole song as that, that back line. I like the way everything builds. There's certainly more energy on this track. I like how it comes back to the riff period, periodically and, and at the end and, uh, and a nice, good finish. But, I, yeah, it's yeah, one of my more favourite tracks on the album.
0: They can start songs. They can definitely start songs. I love the start to uh, No Speak, No slow, You know, that it's, it's moody, isn't it, into that and it's intriguing, you know, a little foot tapper of a guitar line, that little drum roll then, the, um, and then Robinson joins in. And this is decent. This is, God, how have perhaps that sound. This, this, this is decent. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not amazing, but it's decent enough.
1: Like the previous song, there's, there's a bit more going on, so it's interesting, and it holds your attention. And, and I think that, that's, that was the big problem with side one, was that it was very staggy at the end. And it didn't hold me. It didn't captivate me. There's there's lots going on here, and it, it's interesting to listen to. Do I like it? Sure, I, I, it's big. It's good in parts. Some some of it I don't get on with, and some of it is quite good. Like Steve, I think it starts well, um, but then it sort of meanders and drifts and, in an interesting way. But yeah, it's all right.
2: So let's go on to, to track nine, then, which is uh, my morning song again. <laughs> You're right. Very good start. It was the dual slide guitars and it, and it sort of really you know, presents itself. I mean, it's got a nice groove to it. It's, yeah, good foot tapper. But for me, it doesn't really go anywhere, this one.
1: Black Crow's cashmere.
0: Tracks don't have yeah. to go anywhere. We've already established that. Tracks can go where they want. It's just whether they're any good or not. I like this. I like this a lot. Probably doesn't go anywhere. There's a me- it's measured. It's 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 got that peachy groove, and it's southern rock again, and it's catchy. It's very catchy. There's a there's a kind of slightly odd introspective middle section where the girls join in again, and you feel it's going to build to a big big finish, and it kind of does. But I wanted something a bit bigger, in all honesty. But that's probably just me. Um, I like this song.
2: Okay, so uh, come on to the final track then of the. Side and the album, which is a cover. It's a cover of a song that Bob Marley wrote called "Time Will Tell." But what the Black Crows have done is given this reggae song a bit of a I don't know New Orleans is it feel? Uh, Lots of percussion and you you imagine people marching along a street to it. I guess I've always struggled with this (laughs) line. I really have. It's the one, the one on the album of. I've never really connected to. It.
1: Let me help you out. It's shit. That's all it needs to be said. It's, it's a dreadful song. I can't. I can't quite have dreadful. It's um. It meets the cover brief
0: of of not sticking rigidly to the original. The original is fantastic. I mean, what it is is almost insulting to the original because it's reggae gold. Um, you know, worshipped uh by marley but that's fine i don't mind that that's fine but what they did with it is pretty
2: meaningless really all right we might we might have some agreement on the low maybe but well, let's uh let's look at some highs and yeah.
0: the time will tell is is my low um and my high as i say there's three tracks on here i really like which are um sting me hotel illness and my morning song and of the three hotel illness
1: Yeah, time will tell is the low and Stingley is the high.
2: Okay, and for me it's time will tell as my low, but my high is thorn in my pride. Right, so there we go. That's the Southern Harmony musical companion by Black Crowes, following Ride the Lightning by Metallica and Number of the Peace by Iron Maiden. So three of Crofty's choices for us here on Enter Sadman on this episode 42. Right, I think, as we've already said, as we've gone through, we have some contenders. Just how big those contenders are, we will find out soon, because now we need to give each of these tracks a score.
0: Reviews complete. Initializing rating
1: process.
2: So right, the scores are in for our three albums of this episode, episode 42. And let's start with Iron Maiden and Number of the Beast, Mark. How did that get on?
1: uh well, pretty well, actually, I scored it the highest by quite some distance at eight point seven two five followed richard by you at eight point three one uh and Steve, you scored it at 8.1, if we're rounding up eight point one um to give it an overall average album score of eight point three treble six seven Steve talk us through Ride the lightning
0: yeah, well, this did very well as well um as we suggested it might. And there were a few 10s dotted around for some tracks on this. And it gave us scores of um, 8.375 from Rich, 8.625 from Mark, and 8.6875 from me. For a total score, and uh, hang on to this number, 8.56250, which I is going high. Third album of the night was, uh, yeah, The Black Crow, Southern Harmony and musical companion Richard.
2: Yeah, not quite the giddy heights of the eights, but it did okay. Uh, Stevie gave it a 6.8, Mark gave it a 6.96, and I gave it a 7.35, and that left it with an overall of 7.036-ish. So, you know, a solid seven for the Black Crow, but the heady mid eights for Ride the Lightning and number of the beasts which I think will mean they are going to be threatening near the top of our leaderboard it's going to be fascinating to see where they are let's head over to the hall of fame
0: it's time to put the rock in a hard place opening the hall of fame okay so let's get the let's get the disappointing bit out of the way first black crow southern harmony and musical companion they're in our pink zone which is kind of the, the near relegation zone there's no such thing as relegation in the in the august enter sad men hall of fame but it's um it's pretty close to falling out of the top 100 within seconds of getting in there it's a number 99 um down in amongst the detritus of diary of a madman and um poisons open up and say are amongst others but very much at the other end of affairs into the top 10 as we thought they'd go the Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden is at number six. And Drum Rolls Please. We have a new number one, Metallica's Ride the Lightning, has eclipsed Led Zeppelin 4. Been at the top for well my mass is terrible, but several weeks, several months. Um, and finally it has gone. Knocked off the top by Metallica's Ride the Lightning. Personally, I'm I'm not not in the slightest bit of surprise, you lads.
1: I'm, well, I, I kind of got to the point where I thought Zeppelin 4 was never going to move um, from the top spot. So, and and I suppose if I'm being absolutely honest, before this week, I wouldn't have said Ride the Lightning would be the one to topple it. But after this week, absolutely understand why it's there. It's um, it's just the con- the consistency of that album. There's just no. No arguing with it. It's, um, yeah, it deserves to be there. But I am a little bit surprised. I am a little bit surprised.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised it beat the Black Album because it, it has, it's not got any howlers on it. It's got a couple of not so strong tracks. But as we said when we reviewed the Black Album, if they'd missed off the last side of it and uh, kept it to what... 10-11 tracks, it would have been it would have been top. So you know bear in mind what's what what what's ride the lightning? Point one I think isn't it about put rough point one roughly above yeah. um uh, the black Panther. so yeah it's it it's a shame that that Led Zepp four is, is knocked off um and I don't know. Don't, don't quite know what, I personally voted the two of them. I imagine I would have voted Led Zepp higher, but I think the great thing about what we do here is it's, we're marking track by track. It's about album consistency, and it's about album consistency in all three of our opinions. So, fair play to him, absolutely fair play to him.
0: And An interesting footnote, going back to Iron Maiden, uh, Number of the Beast, which has got in at number six. Parallels are drawn naturally between that and the album that followed it, Peace of Mind. Look down our Hall of Fame because we reviewed both and Peace of Mind is at number 87 on the list. Number of the Beast is at number six. I mean, that's quite extraordinary given that, you know, there are huge parallels to be drawn between the pair of them and yet they're gulfs miles apart by our, by our ratings, which is interesting, I thought.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It is. I was thinking exactly the same thing. Um, I mean as I say Number of the Beast was got an average album score of eight point three seven and uh peace of mind got an average album score of seven point two. So you know, there's a, a the ridiculous thing is there's one mark between the two of them, one point. Which is extraordinary really, isn't it? That that's what separates six from eighty seven in this yes. case. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. It's all. It's all very congested. It's all very congested. So there you have it. Um, I think that's what you call a momentous night in the uh, in the glorious history of the Enter podcast Men podcast. Um, a night when we sent a new album to the top of the pile. Take about Metallica and Ride the Lightning. Um, so that's 126 albums reviewed so far. Led Zeppelin IV. Their lifetime at the top is over. Iron Maiden, they gave it a good run as well. they stormed into the top ten. And it will be our pleasure, as always, to put three more albums under the forensic Enter Sad Men microscope next time. Hope to have your company for that one. Don't forget to check out the website, entersadmen.co.uk, for any further info about us and the show and what we do. And I think that's about it. Have a good week. And we'll see you next time music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or
1: subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.